"'This isn't that kind of football, Trev,' said Nutt, soothingly. "'Yeah, I know, but I promised me old mum.' "'Then at least show them your moves, Mr. Trev,' Nutt pleaded. He turned to the players. "'You must see this.' Trev sighed, but Nutt knew just how to wheedle. "'All right if it shuts you up,' he said, and pulled a tin can out of his pocket to much laughter. "'See?' he complained to Nutt. "'They just think it's a joke.' Nutt folded his arms. "'Show them.' Trev dropped the can onto his foot, and with hardly any effort flicked it onto his shoulder, where it rolled around his neck to his other shoulder, and after a tiny pause righted itself. He shrugged it onto his other foot, spun it into the air, and let it tumble and spin on the toe of his boot with a faint rattling noise. Trev winked at Ponder Stibbons. "'Don't move, Gov!' The can sprang off the boot and up into the air. Then, as it fell, he hit it with a roundhouse kick, driving it at Ponder. The people behind Ponder dived out of the way as it growled past his face and went into orbit, appearing for a moment to give him a silver necklace until it broke away and dropped into Trev's hand like a beached salmon. In the silence, Ponder pulled his thermometer out of his pocket and glanced at it. "'Natural background,' he said flatly. "'No magic involved. How did you do that, Mr. Likely?' "'You just have to get the hang of it, Gov. Getting the spins is the thing, but if I have to think too much it don't work. Can you do it with a ball?' Dunno. Never tried, but probably no. Can't get the long spin and the short spin, see? But you ought to be able to get something out of a ball. But how will that help us? said Hicks. Mastery of the ball is everything, said Nutt. The planned rule will, I think, allow the keeper of the goal to handle the ball. This is vital. There is, however, no explicit ban on nodding the ball, kneeing the ball, or blocking the ball with the chest and letting it drop neatly onto the foot. Remember, gentlemen, this ball flies... It will spend a lot of time in the air. You must learn not to think just about the ground. I feel sure that using the head would be considered illegal, said Ponder. Sir, you presume a rule where there is none. Remember what I said about the real nature of the game? Ponder saw Nutt's little half-smile and gave in. Mr. Nutt, I'm delegating the selection and training of our football team to you. You'll report to me, of course. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I will need the power to sequester team members from their normal duties when required. Well, I suppose I must agree to that. Very well, I shall leave the team in your hands, said Ponder, thinking, how many bags of old clothes use the word sequester as if they used to it? Still, Ridcully likes the little goblin, if that's what he is, and I've never seen the point of team games. May I also, sir, request a very small budget? Why? With all due respect to the exigencies of university finances, said Nutt, I believe it is very necessary. Why? "'I wish to take the team to the ballet.' "'That's ridiculous,' Ponder snapped. "'No, sir, it's essential.' "'The next day there was a piece in the Times "'about the mysterious disappearance of the fabulous Jules, "'which made Glenda smile. "'They just haven't read their fairy stories,' she thought as she left the house. "'If you want to find a beauty, you look for her in the ashes.' "'Because Glenda was Glenda and would always irredeemably be Glenda to the core,' she added, "'although the ovens in the night kitchen are scrupulously maintained at all times "'and all ashes are immediately disposed of.' "'To her surprise, Juliet stepped out of her doorway at almost the same time "'and looked as if she was almost awake. "'Do you think they'll let me in on the banquet?' she said as they waited for the bus. "'Theoretically, yes,' Glenda thought, but probably no, because she was a night kitchen girl.' Even though she was Juliet, she would be tarred by Mrs. Whitlow as a night kitchen girl. "'Juliet, you shall go to the banquet,' she said aloud, "'and so shall I.' "'But I think Mrs. Whitlow won't like that,' said Juliet. Something was still bubbling inside Glenda. It had started in shatter and lasted all day yesterday, and there was still some left today. 
I don't care, she said. Juliet giggled and looked around in case Mrs. Whitlow was hiding near the bus stop. And I really don't care, Glenda thought. I don't care. It was like drawing a sword. Ponder's office always puzzled Mustram Ridcully. The man used filing cabinets, for heaven's sake. Ridcully worked on the basis that anything you couldn't remember wasn't important and had developed the floor-heap method of document storage to a fine art. Ponder looked up. Ah, good morning, Arch-Chancellor. Just had a look in at the hall, said Ridcully. Yes, Arch-Chancellor? Our lads are all doing ballet. Yes, Arch-Chancellor. And there were some girls from the Opera House with those short dresses. Yes, Arch-Chancellor, they're helping the team. Ridcully leaned over and put huge knuckles either side of the paper Ponder was working on. Why? Mr. Nutt's idea, Arch-Chancellor. Apparently they must learn balance, poise and elegance. Have you ever seen Bledlow knobs try to stand on one leg? Let me tell you, it's an immediate cure for melancholy. I can imagine, said Ponder, not looking up. I thought the idea was to learn how to kick the ball into the goal. Ah, yes, but Mr. Nutt has a philosophy. Does he? Yes, sir. They're running about all over the place, I know that, said Ridcully. Yes, Mr. Nutt and Mr. Likely are preparing a little something extra for the banquet, said Ponder, getting up and opening the top drawer of a filing cabinet. The sight of filing cabinets opening tended to remind Ridcully that he should be elsewhere, but on this occasion the ruse failed to work. Oh, and I believe we have some fresh balls. Mr. Snorrison knows an opportunity when he sees one. So it's all going well, then, said Ridcully in a kind of mystified voice. Apparently so, sir. Well, I suppose I'd better leave it alone, said Ridcully. He hesitated, feeling at a bit of a loose end, and found another thread to pull. And how are those rules coming along, Mr. Stibbons? Oh, quite well, thank you, Arch-Chancellor. I'm keeping in some of the ones from the street game, of course, to keep everybody happy. Some of them are quite strange. Mr. Nutt's quite a decent chap, it appears. Oh, yes, Arch-Chancellor. Very good idea of his to redesign the goal, I thought. Makes it more fun. Aren't you going to train, sir? said Ponder, pulling another document towards him. I'm the captain. I do not need to train. Ridcully turned to leave and stopped with his hand on the doorknob. Had a long chat with the former dean last night. Decent soul at heart, of course, he said. Yes, I understand the atmosphere in the uncommon room was very convivial, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder, and expensive, he added to himself. You know young Adrian Turnipseed is a professor. Oh, yes, Arch-Chancellor. You want to be one? Not really, Arch-Chancellor. I think there should be one or two posts in this institution that I don't hold. Yes, but they've just called their machine PEX. Hardly a great leap of ingenuity, is it? Oh, there are some significant differences. I believe he's using chickens to generate the blitz diametric, said Ponder. Apparently so, said Ridcully. Something like that, anyway. Hmm, said Ponder. And it was quite a solid hmm, possibly one you could moor a small boat to. Something wrong, said Ridcully. Oh, uh, not really, Arch-Chancellor. Did the former dean mention anything about the need to totally rebuild the morphic resonator? to allow for the necessary changes in the blit-slewed interface? Shouldn't think so, said Ridcully. Oh, said Ponder, his face blank. Well, Adrian is bound to get round to that. He's very clever. Yes, but it was all based on your work. You built Hex, and now they're putting out that he's some big clever clogs. He's even on a cigarette card. That's nice, sir. It's good when researchers get recognition. Ridcully felt like a mosquito that was trying to sting a steel breastplate. Ha! "'Wizardry has certainly changed since my day,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' said Ponder, noncommittally. "'And by the way, Mr. Stebbins,' said Ridcully as he opened the door, 
My day isn't over yet. There was a yell in the distance, and then a crash. Ridcully smiled. The day had suddenly brightened up. When he and Ponder reached the great hall, most of the team were gathered around one of their members lying on the floor with Nut kneeling over him. What happened here? Ridcully demanded. Badly bruised, sir. I shall put a compress on it. Ah! His gaze fell upon a large brass bound chest. It looked at first sight like any other chest until you saw the tiny little toes poking out. Rincewind's luggage, he growled. And where that is, Rincewind can't be far in front. Rincewind? Actually, it wasn't my fault, said Rincewind. He's right, sir, said Nut. I have to apologize for the fact that this was a group misapprehension. I understand it is a remarkably magical chest on hundreds of little legs, and I'm afraid that the gentleman here believes that it would play football like stink, as they put it. In which surmise, I have to say, they were proved wrong. I tried to tell them, said the former dean from the edge of the crowd. Morning, Mustrum, good team you have here. All its feet do is get in each other's way, said Bengo Macarona, and if it does get on top of the ball, it spins out of control, and, alas, it crashed into Mr. Sopworthy here. Oh, well, we learn by our mistakes, said Ridcully. And now, do you happen to have something nice to show me? I think I have the very thing, Arch-Chancellor, said a cheerful but reedy voice behind him. Ridcully turned and looked into the face of a man with the shape and urgency of a piccolo. He seemed to be vibrating on the spot. Professor Ritornello, Master of the Music, Ponder whispered into Ridcully's ear. Ah, Professor, said Ridcully smoothly, and I see you have the choir with you. Yes, indeed, Arch-Chancellor, and I must tell you, I am thrilled and filled with inner light by what I have witnessed this morning. Without ado, I have penned a chant such as you asked for. Did I? said Ridcully, out of the corner of his mouth. You will remember that chanting was mentioned, and so I thought it best to alert the Professor, whispered Ponder. Another P.P., eh? Oh, well. Happily, it is based on the traditional plain chant or stolation form, and is a valedictor or hailed the winner. May I? said Professor Ritornello. It is a cappella, of course. Go ahead, by all means, said Ridcully. The master of the music pulled a short baton out of his sleeve. I've put the name of Bengo Macarona in there for a marker at the moment, because he has apparently scored two fine goals, as I believe they are called, he said, dealing carefully with the word as one might deal with a large spider in the bathtub. Then he caught the eyes of his little flock, nodded, and... Hail the unique qualities of Magister Bengo Macarona! Of Macarona the unique qualities hail, hail thee, hail thee, the singular talent possessed by no other, hail, hail thee, hail thee, bountiful gods, who to the, to the singular, singular, singular. After a minute and a half of this, Ridcully coughed loudly, and the master waved the choir into a stuttering silence. Is there something untoward, Arch-Chancellor? Uh, not as such, Master, but um, do you not feel that it's a bit too, well, long? Ridcully was aware that the former dean was not trying very hard to suppress a snigger. Not at all. In fact, sir, I intend that when it is finished, it will be scored for forty voices, and, though I dare to say so, will be my masterwork. But it is something for football fans to sing, you see? said Ridcully. 
"'Well, then,' said the master, holding his baton in a rather threatening manner, "'is it not the duty of the educated classes to raise the standards of the lower orders?' "'He's got a point there, Mustram,' said the chair of indefinite studies, "'and Ridcully felt his grandfather kick him in the heredity, "'and was glad that maid wasn't here. "'What was her name now? "'Oh, yes, Glenda, smart woman, "'but although she was not there, "'he saw something of her expression in Trev Likely's face. "'During the week, possibly,' he snapped, "'but not on Saturdays, I think. "'But very well done, anyway, "'and I look forward to hearing more of your efforts.' "'The master of the music flounced out, "'with the choir flouncing out in perfect unison behind him. Ridcully rubbed his hands together. "'Well, gentlemen, perhaps you could show me your moves.' While the players spread out in the hall, Nutt said, "'I must say that Professor Macarona is excelling at the game. He clearly has excellent ball skills.' "'I'm not surprised,' said Ridcully brightly. "'The librarian is, of course, an excellent keeper of the goal, especially since he can stand in the middle and reach either side of it. I believe that it will be very hard for any of our opponents to get past him. And, of course, you'll be partaking also, Arch-Chancellor.' "'Oh, you don't become Arch-Chancellor if you don't get the hang of things quickly. "'I will just watch for now.' He watched. After the second occasion, when Macarona, like a silver streak, ran the length of the hall to flick the ball into the opponent's goal, Ridcully turned to Ponder and said, "'We're going to win, aren't we?' "'If indeed he is still playing for you,' put in the former dean. "'Oh, come now, Henry. Can we at least agree to just play one game at a time here?' "'Well, I think today's session should end pretty soon, sir,' said Ponder. "'It's the banquet tonight, after all, and it will take some time to get the place ready.' "'Excuse me, Gav, that's right,' said Trev behind him. "'And we've got to get the chandelier down and put new candles in.' "'Yes, but we have been practising a little demonstration for tonight. "'Maybe the Arch-Chancellor would like to see it,' said Nutt. "'Ridcully looked at his watch. "'Well, yes, Mr. Nutt, but time is getting on, and so I look forward to seeing it later. "'Splendid effort all round, though,' he boomed. The night market was setting up in Sator Square as Glenda and Juliet arrived for work. Ank Morpork lived on the street, where it got its food, entertainment, and, in a city with a ferocious housing shortage, a place to hang around until there was space on a floor. Stalls had been set up anywhere, and flares filled the early evening air with stink, and, almost as a by-product, a certain amount of light. Glenda could never resist looking, especially now. She was very good at all sorts of cookery. She really was— and it was important to keep that knowledge at the calm centre of her spinning brain. And there was Verity Pushpram, Queen of the Sea. Glenda had a lot of time for Miss Pushpram, who was a self-made woman, although she could have used some help when it came to her eyes, which were set so far apart that she rather resembled a turbot. But Verity, like the ocean that was making her fortune these days, had hidden depths. Because she'd made enough to buy a boat, and then another boat, and a whole isle in the fish market— but she still woman-handled her barrow to the square most evenings, where she sold whelks, shrimps, leather crabs, blossom prawns, monkey clams, and her famous hot fish sticks. Glenda often bought from her. There was the kind of respect you give to an equal who is, crucially, no threat to your own position. "'Going to the big bunfight girls,' said Verity cheerfully, waving a halibut at them. "'Yes,' said Juliet proudly. "'What, both of you?' said Verity, with a glance towards Glenda, who said firmly— "'The night kitchen is expanding.' "'Oh, well, so long as you're having fun,' said Verity, "'looking, in theory, from one to the other. "'Here, have one of these. They're lovely. My treat.' "'She reached down and picked a crab out of a bucket. "'As it came up, it turned out that three more were hanging on to it. "'A crab necklace?' giggled Juliet. "'Oh, that's crabs for you,' said Verity, "'disentangling the ones who had hitched a ride. 
Take us planks, the lot of them. That's why you can keep them in a bucket without a lid. Any that tries to get out gets pulled back. Yes, as thick as planks. Verity held the crab over an ominously bubbling cauldron. Shall I cook it for you now? Uh, no, said Glenda, much louder than she'd intended. Are you okay, dear? Verity inquired. You look a bit ill. I'm fine, fine. Just a touch of sore throat, that's all. Crab bucket, she thought. I thought Pepe was talking nonsense. Um, could you just truss it up for us? It's going to be a long night. Right you are said Miss Pushpram, expertly wrapping the unresisting crab in twine. "'You know what to do, that's certain. Lovely crabs these, real good eating. But thick as planks.' "'Crab bucket,' thought Glenda, as they hurried towards the night kitchen. "'That's how it works. People from the sisters disapproving when a girl takes the trolley bus. That's crab bucket. "'Practically everything my mum ever told me. That's crab bucket. "'Practically everything I've ever told Juliet. That's crab bucket, too. Maybe it's just another word for the shove.' It's so nice and warm on the inside that you forget that there's an outside. The worst of it is, the crab that mostly keeps you down is you. The realisation had her mind on fire. A lot hinges on the fact that, in most circumstances, people are not allowed to hit you with a mallet. They put up all kinds of visible and invisible signs that say, do not do this, in the hope that it'll work. But if it doesn't, then they shrug because there is, really, no real mallet at all. Look at Juliet talking to all those knobby ladies. She didn't know that she shouldn't talk to them like that, and it worked. Nobody hit her on the head with a hammer. And custom and practice, as embodied by Mrs Whitlow, was that the night kitchen staff should not go above stairs, to where the light was comparatively clean and had not already been through a lot of other eyeballs. Well, Glenda had done that, and nothing bad had happened, had it? So now Glenda strode towards the great hall, her serviceable shoes hitting the floor enough to hurt. The day girls said nothing as she marched in behind them. There was nothing for them to say. The real unwritten rule was that girls on the dumpy side didn't serve at table when guests were present, and Glenda had decided tonight that she couldn't read unwritten rules. Besides, there was a row already going on. The servants who were laying out the cutlery were trying to keep an eye on it, which subsequently meant that more than one guest had to eat with two spoons. Glenda was amazed to see the candle knave waving his hands at Trev and Nut, and she headed for them. She did not like Smeems very much. A man could be dogmatic, and that was all right, or he could be stupid and no harm done. But stupid and dogmatic at the same time was too much, especially fluxed with body odour. What's this all about? It worked. The right tone from a woman with her arms folded always bounces an answer out of an unprepared man before he has time to think, and even before he has time to think up a lie. They raised the chandelier. They raised it without lighting the candles. We won't have enough time now to get it down and up again before the guests come in. But Mr. Smeems, Trev began, and all I get is talking back and lies, Smeems complained bitterly. But I can light them from here, Mr. Smeems. Nut spoke quietly, even his voice huddling. Don't give me that. Even wizards can't do that without getting wax all over the place, you little... That's enough, Mr. Smeems said a voice that, to Glenda's surprise, turned out to be hers. "'Can you light them, Mr. Nutt?' "'Yes, miss, at the right time.' "'There you are, then,' said Glenda. "'I suggest you leave it to Mr. Nutt.' Smeems looked at her, and she could see there was, as it were, an invisible mallet in his thinking, a feeling that he might get into some trouble here. "'I should run along now,' she said. "'I can't stand around. I'm a man with responsibilities.' Smeems looked wrong-footed and bewildered but from his point of view absence was a good idea. Glenda almost saw his brain reach the conclusion. Not being there diluted the blame for whatever it was that was going to go wrong. 
"'Can't stand around,' he repeated. "'Ha! You'd all be in the dark if it wasn't for me!' With that, he grabbed his greasy bag and scuttled off. Glenda turned to Nut. He can't possibly make himself smaller, she told herself. His clothes would fit him even worse than they do already. I must be imagining it. "'Can you really light the candles from here?' she said aloud. Nut carried on, staring at the floor. Glenda turned to Trev. "'Can he really?' But Trev was not there, because Trev was leaning against the wall some distance away, talking to Juliet. She could read it all at a glance. His possessive stance, her modestly downcast eyes, not hanky-panky as such, but certainly overture and beginners to hanky-panky. Oh, the power of words! As you watch, so are you watched. Glenda looked down into the penetrating eyes of Nut. Was that a frown? What had he seen in her expression? More than she wanted, that was certain. The tempo in the hall was increasing. The football captains would be assembling in one of the ante-rooms, and she could imagine them there in clean shirts, or at least in shirts less grubby than usual, dragged here from the various versions of Botany Street all over the city, staring up at the wonderful vaulting and wondering if they were going to walk out of there dead. <laughs> she tagged onto that thought. More likely it would be dead drunk. And, just as her brain began to pivot around that new thought, a severe voice behind her said, "'We do not usually expect to see you in the great hall, Glenda.' It had to be Mrs. Whitlow. Only the housekeeper would pronounce we with an H and finish a plain statement as if it were a question. Besides, without turning round, Glenda heard the clink of her silver chatelaine, reputed to hold the one key that could open any lock in the university, and the creaking of her fearsome corsetry. It is said that if you want to stand up to someone, you should picture them naked. In the case of Mrs. Whitlow, this would be, as Ponder Stibbons might put it, contra-indicated. Glenda turned. There is no mallet. I thought you might need a few extra hands tonight, Mrs. Whitlow, she said sweetly. Nevertheless, custom and practice. Ah, dear Mrs. Whitlow, I think we're ready to let them through now. His lordship's coach will shortly be leaving the palace, said the arch-chancellor behind them. Mrs. Whitlow could loom, but mostly only horizontally. Mustram Ridcully could out-loom her by more than two feet. She turned hurriedly and gave the little half-curtsy which he'd never dared tell her he always found mildly annoying. "'Oh, and Miss Glenda, isn't it?' said the Arch-Chancellor happily. "'Good to see you up here. Very useful young lady, Mrs. Whitlow. Got initiative. Fine grasp of things.' "'How kind of you to say so. She is one of my best girls,' said the housekeeper, spitting teeth and taking care not to meet Glenda's suddenly cherubic gaze. "'Big chandelier not lit, I see,' said Ridcully. Glenda stepped forward. "'Mr. Nutt is planning a surprise for us, sir.' "'Mr. Nutt is full of surprises. "'We've had an amazing day here today, Miss Glenda,' said Redcully. "'Our Mr. Nutt has been teaching the lads to play football his way. "'Do you know what he did yesterday? "'You'll never guess. "'Tell them, Mr. Nutt.' "'I took them along to the Royal Opera House "'to watch the dancers in training,' said Nutt nervously. "'You see, it is very important that they learn the skills of movement and poise.' "'And then, when they came back,' said Redcully, "'with the same slightly threatening joviality, he had them playing here in the hall blindfolded. Nut coughed nervously. It is vital for them to keep track of every other player, he said. It is essential that they are a team. And then he took them to see Lord Rust's hunting dogs. Nut coughed again, even more embarrassed. When they hunt, every dog knows the position of every other dog. I wanted them to understand the duality of team and player. The strength of the player is the team, and the strength of the team is the player. Do you hear that? said Redcully. Great stuff. 
Oh, he had them running up and down here all day long, balancing balls on their heads, doing big diagrams on a blackboard. You'd think it was some kind of battle being planned. It is a, a battle, said Nut. I mean, not with the opposing team as such, but it is a battle between every man and himself. That sounds very Uberwaltian, said Ridcully. Still, they all seem full of vim and vigour and ready for the evening. I think Mr. Nutt is planning one of those sunny luminaire things. Just a little something to capture people's attention, said Nutt. Anything going to go off bang, said Ridcully. No, sir. Promise? Personally, I like the occasional bit of storm and drang, but Lord Vetinari is a tad particular about that sort of thing. No thunder and lightning, sir. Possibly a brief haze high up. It seemed to Glenda that the Arch-Chancellor was paying some thoughtful attention to Nut. How many languages do you speak, you, er, uh, Nut? Three dead and twelve living, sir, said Nut. Really? Really? said Redcully, as though filing this away and trying not to think how many of them were alive before you murdered them. Well done. Thank you, Mr. Nut, and you too, ladies. We'll bring them in shortly. Glenda took this opportunity to get out of Mrs. Whitlow's way. She was not pleased to see that Trev and Juliet had already taken a slightly earlier opportunity to get out of hers. Do not worry about Juliet, said Nut, who had followed her. Who said I was worried? Glenda snapped. You did. Your expression, your stance, the set of your body, your... "'Reactions, your tone of voice, everything. "'You have no business to be looking at my everything. "'I mean, the set of my body. "'It is simply the way you stand, Miss Glenda. "'And you can read my mind. "'It may appear that way. I'm so sorry. "'And Juliet, what was she thinking? "'I'm not sure, but she likes Mr. Trev. "'She thinks he is funny. "'So have you read Trev's everything? "'But that was a dirty book.' Uh, no, miss. He is worried and confused. I would say he is trying to see what kind of man he is going to be. Really? He's always been a scallywag. He is thinking of his future. Across the hall, the big doors opened just as the last scurrying servants reached their stations. This made no impression on Glenda, lost in thought as she wrestled with the prospect that a leopard might change his shorts. He has been a bit quietly, I must admit. And he did write that lovely poem. That should mean a lot, a poem. Who'd have thought it? It's not like him at all. With atomic speed, Nut was suddenly missing, and the doors stood wide, and here came the captains with their retinues, and all of them were nervous, and some of them were wearing unaccustomed suits, and some of them were walking a little unsteadily even now, because the wizard's idea of an aperitif had bite, and in the kitchen plates would be being filled, and the chefs would be cursing, and the ovens clanging as they... as they... what was the menu, anyway? Life as an unseen part of unseen university was a matter of alliances, feuds, obligations and friendships, all stirred and twisted and woven together. Glenda was good at it. The night kitchen had always been generous to other toilers, and right now the great hall owed her favours, even if all she had done was keep her mouth shut. Now she bore down on shiny Robert, one of the head waiters, who gave her the cautious nod due to someone who knew things about you that you wouldn't want your mother to know. "'Got a menu?' she asked. One was produced from under a napkin. She read it in horror. "'That's not the stuff they like?' "'Oh, dear, Glenda,' Robert smirked. "'Are you saying it's too good for them?' "'You're giving them avec. Nearly every dish has got avec in it. But stuff with avec in the name is an acquired taste. I mean, do these look to you like people who habitually eat in a foreign language?' "'Oh, dear, and you're giving them beer. Beer with avec.' "'A choice of wines is available. They are choosing beer,' said Robert coldly. Glenda stared at the captains. They seemed to be enjoying themselves now. Here was free food and drink, 
and if the food tasted strange there was plenty of it, and the beer tasted welcomely familiar, and there was lots of that too. She didn't like this. Heavens knew that football had got pretty disgusting these days, but, well, she couldn't quite work out what she was uneasy about, but— "'Excuse me, miss!' she looked down. A young footballer had decided to confide in the only uniformed woman he could see who was not carrying at least two plates at once. "'Can I help?' He lowered his voice. "'This chutney tastes of fish, miss!' She looked at the other grinning faces around the table. "'It's called caviar, sir. It'll put lead in your pencil.' The table, as one well-oiled drinker, guffawed, but the youth only looked puzzled. "'I haven't got a pencil, miss!' More amusement. "'There's not a lot of them around,' said Glenda, and left them laughing. "'So kind of you to invite me, Mustram,' said Lord Vetinari, waving away the hors d'oeuvre. He turned to the wizard on his right. "'And the Arch-Chancellor, formerly known as Dean, is back with you, I see. That is capital. "'You may remember that Henry went to Sidopolis. Brazenek, you know. He is—' uh, Ridcully slowed. "'The new Arch-Chancellor,' said Vetinari. He picked up a spoon and perused it carefully, as if it were a rare and curious object. "'Dear me!' I thought that there could be only one Arch-Chancellor. Is this not so? One above all others, and one hat, of course. But these are wizardly matters of which I know little, so do excuse me if I have misunderstood. In the gently turning bowl of the spoon his nose went from long to short. However, it occurs to me as an onlooker that this could lead to a little friction, perhaps— the spoon stopped in mid-twirl. "'A soupçon, perhaps,' said Ridcully, not looking in the direction of Henry. "'That much indeed. But I surmise from the absence of people being turned into frogs that you gentlemen have foregone the traditional option of magical mayhem. Well done. When it comes to the pinch, old friends united by the bonds of mutual disrespect cannot bring themselves to actually kill one another. We have hope.' "'Ah, soup!' There was a brief interregnum as the ladle went from bowl to bowl, and then the patrician said, "'Could I assist you? I am without any bias in this matter.' Uh, "'Excuse me, my lord, but I think it might be said that you would favour Ankh-Morpork,' said the Arch-Chancellor, formerly known as Dean. "'Really? It might also be said that it would be in my interest to weaken the perceived power of this university. You take my meaning?' The delicate balance between town and gown, the unseen and the mundane, the twin foci of power. It might be said that I could take the opportunity to embarrass my learned friend. He smiled a little smile. Do you still own the official arch-chancellor's hat, Mustram? I notice that you don't wear it these days, and tend to prefer the snazzy number with the rather attractive drawers and the small drinks cabinet in the point. "'I never liked wearing the official one. It grumbled all the time.' "'It really can talk,' said Vetinari. "'I think the word nag would be far more accurate, "'since its only topic of conversation has been how much better things used to be. "'My only comfort here is that every arch-chancellor over the last thousand years "'has complained about it in exactly the same way.' "'So it can think and speak,' said Vetinari innocently. "'Well, I suppose you could put it like that.' "'Then you can't own it, Mustram.' A hat that thinks and speaks cannot be enslaved. No slaves in Ankh-Morpork, Mustram. He waved a finger waggishly. Yes, but it is the look of the thing. What would it look like if I gave up the uniqueness of Arch-Chancellorship without a fight? I really could not say, said Lord Vetinari. 
But since just about every genuine battle between wizards has hitherto resulted in wholesale destruction, I feel that you would at least look a little embarrassed. And, of course, I will remind you that you were quite happy that Arch-Chancellor Bill Rincewind at Bugger-Up University cheerfully calls himself Arch-Chancellor. Yes, but he's a long way away, said Ridcully, and Forex doesn't really count us anywhere, whereas in Pseudopolis we're talking about a Johnny-come-lately of an organisation, and it's... So we are then merely arguing over the question of distance, said Vetinari. No, but, said Ridcully, and stopped. Is this worth the argument, I ask you, said Vetinari. What we have here, gentlemen, is but a spat between the heads of a venerable and respected institution and an ambitious, relatively inexperienced, and importunate new school of learning. Yes, that's what we've got, all right, said Ridcully. Vetinari raised a finger. I hadn't finished, Arch-Chancellor. Let me see now. I said that what we have here is a spat between an antique and somewhat fossilised, elderly and rather hidebound institution, and a college of vibrant newcomers full of fresh and exciting ideas. Yeah, hang on, you didn't say that the first time, said Ridcully. Vetinari leaned back. Indeed I did, Arch-Chancellor. Do you not remember our talk about the meaning of words a little while ago? Context is everything. I suggest, therefore, that you allow the head of Brazeneck University the opportunity to wear the official Arch-Chancellor's hat, for a short time. You had to pay close attention to what Lord Vetinari said. Sometimes the words, while clearly docile, had a tendency to come back and bite. "'Play the football for the hat,' said Vetinari. He looked at their faces. "'Gentlemen, gentlemen, do take a moment to consider this. The importance of the hat is enhanced.' The means by which the wizards strive are not primarily magical. The actual striving, and indeed the rivalry, will, I think, be good for both universities, and people will be interested, whereas in the past when wizards have argued they have had to hide in the cellars. Please do not answer me too quickly, otherwise I will think you have not thought about this enough. As a matter of fact, I can think very fast indeed, said Ridcully. It will simply be no contest. It will be totally unfair. "'It certainly will,' said Henry. "'Ah, you both feel that it will be totally unfair,' said Vetinari. "'Indeed, we have a much younger faculty and the brisk and healthy playing fields of Sudopolis. "'Capital,' said Lord Vetinari. "'It seems to me that we have a challenge, university against university, "'city, as it were, against city, warfare, as it were, "'without the tedious necessity of picking up all those heads and limbs afterwards.' "'All things must strive, gentlemen.' "'I suppose I have to agree,' said Ridcully. "'It's not as if I'm going to lose the hat in any case. "'I must note, though, Havelock, "'that you do not allow many challenges to your position.' "'Oh, but I am challenged very frequently,' said Lord Vetinari. "'It's just that they don't win. "'Incidentally, gentlemen, I did notice in today's paper "'that the new voters of Pseudopolis "'yesterday voted not to have to pay taxes. "'When you see the President again,' Please don't hesitate to tell him that I will be more than happy to advise him when he feels it is necessary. Cheer up, gentlemen. Neither of you has got exactly what you want, but both of you have got exactly what you deserve. If the leopard can change his shorts, a wizard can change his hat. And the leopard must change his shorts, gentlemen, or we are all doomed. Are you referring to the loco business? said Henry. You needn't look surprised. "'I don't intend to. I am surprised,' said Vetinari. "'But please, credit me with not looking surprised, "'unless, of course, there is some advantage in doing so.' 
We are going to have to do something. The expedition found a nest of the damn things. Yes, children, which they killed, said Veterinary. Pups that they exterminated. Indeed, and what do you suggest? We are talking about a very evil force here. Arch-Chancellor, I see evil when I look in my shaving mirror. It is, philosophically, present everywhere in the universe, in order, apparently, to highlight the existence of good. I think there is more to this theory, but I tend to burst out laughing at this point. I take it that you are behind the idea of an expeditionary force to Far Uberwald. Of course, said the former dean. It has been tried once before. It was tried twice before that. Why is there a certain cast of the military mind which leads sensible people to do again with gusto what didn't work before? Force is all they understand. You must know that. Force is all that's been tried, Arch-Chancellor Henry. Besides, if they are animals, as some people claim, then they understand nothing. But if, as I am convinced, they are sapient creatures, then some understanding is surely required by us. The patrician took a sip of his beer. I have told this to few people, gentlemen, and I suspect never will again. But one day, when I was a young boy on holiday in Uberwald, I was walking along the bank of a stream when I saw a mother otter with her cubs. A very endearing sight, I am sure you'll agree. And even as I watched, the mother otter dived into the water and came up with a plump salmon, which she subdued and dragged onto a half-submerged lock. As she ate it, while of course it was still alive, the body split, and I remember to this day the sweet pinkness of its rose as they spilled out, much to the delight of the baby otters, who scrambled over themselves to feed on the delicacy. One of nature's wonders, gentlemen, mother and children dining upon mother and children. And that's when I first learned about evil. It is built into the very nature of the universe. Every world spins in pain. If there is any kind of supreme being, I told myself, it is up to all of us to become his moral superior. The two wizards exchanged a glance. Vetinari was staring into the depths of his beer mug, and they were glad that they did not know what he saw in there. "'Is it me, or is it rather dark in here?' said Henry. "'Good heavens, yes, I forgot about the chandelier!' exclaimed Ridcully. "'Where is Mr. Nutt?' "'Here,' said Nutt, rather closer than Ridcully would have preferred. "'Why?' "'I said I would be ready when you needed me, sir.' "'What? Oh, yes, of course you did.' "'He's short and polite and amazingly helpful,' he told himself. "'Nothing to worry about at all. "'Well, show us how to light the candles, Mr. Nutt. "'Could I possibly have a fanfare, sir?' "'I doubt it, young man, but I will bring the hall to attention.' "'Ridcully picked up a spoon and tapped the side of a wine-glass "'in the time-honoured, look, everybody, I'm trying to make a loud noise very quietly procedure, "'which has successfully eluded after-dinner speakers "'ever since the invention of glasses, spoons, and dinners. "'Gentlemen, pray silence, an expectant one, "'followed by appreciative applause for the lighting of the chandelier.' "'There was the silence.' As a round of applause was followed by some more silence, people turned around in their chairs for a better view of nothing to see. "'Would you please puff on your pipe and hand it to me, sir?' said Nutt. Shrugging, Ridcully did so. Nutt took it, raised it in the air, and... What happened? It was a topic of conversation for days. Did the red fire come up from the pipe, or down from the ceiling, or simply out of the walls? All it was certain was that the darkness was suddenly fractured by glowing zigzags, that vanished in a blink, leaving a total blackness which cleared like the sky at dawn as all at once every candle in perfect unison 
glowed into life. As the applause began to mount, Ridcully looked along the table at Ponder, who waved his thermometer, shook his head and shrugged. Then the Arch-Chancellor turned to Nutt, took him out of earshot of the table, and for the benefit of watchers shook him by the hand. "'Well done, Mr. Nutt. Just one thing. That wasn't magic, because we would know. So how was it done?' "'Well, initially dwarfish alchemy, sir. You know the kind that works? It is how they light the big chandeliers and the caverns under Bionk. I worked that out by tests and analysis. All the candle wicks are connected by a network of black cotton thread, which terminates in one single thread which barely shows up in this hall. You see, the thread is soaked in a formula which burns with extreme but brief ferocity when dry. My slightly altered solution burns considerably faster even than that, consuming the thread until it's nothing but gas. It is quite safe. Only the tips of the candlewicks are treated, you see, and they light as normal. You might be interested, sir, in the fact that the flame travels so fast as to be instantaneous by any human measure, certainly faster than twenty miles a second, I calculate. Ridcully was good at looking blank. You couldn't deal with veterinary on a regular basis without being able to freeze your expression at will. But right now he didn't have to try. Nutt looked concerned. Have I failed to achieve worth, sir? What? Ah, well, Ridcully's face thawed. A wonderful effort, Nutt. Well done. Uh, how did you get hold of the ingredients? Oh, there is an old alchemy room in the cellars. Hmm, well... "'Thank you again,' said Ridcully. "'But as master of this university, "'I must ask you not to talk to anyone about this invention "'until we have spoken again on the matter. "'Now, I must get back to the events in hand.' "'Don't you worry, sir. "'I will see that it does not fall into the wrong hands,' "'said Nutt, bustling off. "'Except, of course, that you are the wrong hands,' "'Ridcully thought as he returned to the table. "'An impressive display,' said Vetinari, "'as Ridcully took his seat again.' Am I right in thinking, Mustram, that the Mr. Nutt you referred to is indeed, as it were, the Mr. Nutt? That's right, yes, quite a decent chap. And you're letting him do alchemy? I think it was his own idea, sir. And he's been standing here all this time? Very keen. Is there a problem, Havelock? No, no, not at all, said Vetinari. It was indeed an impressive display, Glenda acknowledged, but while she watched it, she could feel Mrs. Whitlow's gaze on her. In theory, Glenda's activities would merit another kind of firework display later on, but it wasn't going to happen, was it? She had nailed the invisible hammer, but there were other, if less personal, matters on her mind. Stupid, silly, and thoughtless though some of her neighbours were, it was up to her, as ever, to protect their interests— they had been dropped into a world they didn't understand, so she had to understand it for them. She thought this because, as she prowled between the tables, she could make out a certain type of clink-clink noise, and, sure enough, the amount of silverware on the tables appeared to be diminishing. After watching carefully for a moment or two, she walked up behind Mr. Stollop, and without ceremony pulled three silver spoons and a silver fork out of his jacket pocket. He spun around, and then had the decency to look a bit embarrassed when he saw that it was her. Glenda didn't have to open her mouth. "'They've got so many,' he protested. "'Who needs all these knives and forks?' She reached into the man's other pocket and pulled out three silver knives and a silver salt cellar. "'Well, there's such a lot,' said Stollop. "'I didn't think they'd miss one or two. Glenda stared at him. The clinking of cutlery disappearing from the tables had been a small but noticeable part of the ambient noise for some time. She leaned down until her face was an inch away from his. "'Mr. Stollop. I wonder if that's what Lord Vetinari is expecting you all to do. His face went white. She nodded. Just a word to the wise, she said. 
and words spread fast. As Glinda walked on, she was gratified to hear behind her, spreading along the tables, more clinking as a tide of cutlery flowed swiftly out of pockets and back onto the tables. The tinkling flew up and down the tables like little fairy bells. Glenda smiled to herself and hurried off to dare everything, or at least everything that she dared. Lord Vetinari stood up. For some inexplicable reason he needed no fanfare. No, would you put your hands together for, no, lend me your ears, no, be upstanding for. He simply stood up, and the noise went down. Gentlemen, thank you for coming, and may I thank you, Arch-Chancellor Ridcully, for being such a generous host this evening. May I also take this opportunity to put your minds at rest. You see, there appears to be a rumour going around that I am against the playing of football. Nothing could be further from the truth. I am completely in favour of the traditional game of football, and indeed would be more than happy to see the game leave the fusty obscurity of the back streets. Moreover, while I know you have your own schedule of games, I personally propose a league, as it were, of senior teams who will valiantly vie with one another for a golden cup. There were cheers of a beery nature, or should I say gold-ish cup. More cheers and more laughter. Based on the recently discovered ancient urn known as the Tackle, which I am sure you have all seen, General Sniggering. And if you haven't, then your wives certainly have. Silence, followed by a tsunami of laughter which, like most tidal waves, had a lot of froth on the top. Glenda, lurking among the serving girls, was taken aback and affronted at the same time, which was a bit of a squeeze, and wondered, So he's planning something. They're lapping it up along with the beer, too. Never seen that before, said a wine waiter beside her. Seen what before? Seen his lordship drinking. He doesn't even drink wine. Glenda looked at the skinny black figure and said, enunciating carefully, "'When you say he does not drink wine, do you mean he does not drink wine, or he does not drink wine?' "'He doesn't have a bloody drink, that's all I'm saying. That's Lord Vetinari, that is. He's got ears everywhere. I can only see two, but he's quite handsome in a way.' "'Oh, yeah, the ladies like him,' said the waiter, and sniffed. "'Everyone knows he's got something going on with that vampire up in Uberwald, you know, the one who invented the Temperance League.' Vampires who don't suck blood? Hello, what's this? Let no one suppose that I am alone in a desire to see a better future for this great game, Vetinari was saying. Tonight, gentlemen, you will see football, hear football, and if you don't duck, gentlemen, you might even eat football. Here to display a marriage of football from the past, and I dare hope from the future, I present to you the first team of Unseen University, Unseen Academicals. The candles went out all at once, even the ones high up in the chandelier. Glenda could see pale ghosts of smoke rising in the gloom. Beside her, Nut started counting under his breath. One, two. At the count of three, the candles at the far end of the hall burst into life again, revealing Trevor Likely, wearing his most infectious grin. Evening all, he said, and to you too, your lordship. My, but ain't you looking quite the swell tonight. As breaths were indrawn all around the hall, Trev pulled out his tin can, dropped it onto his foot, and flicked it up onto his shoulder, where it travelled around the back of his neck and down his other arm. At the start, people used to kick rocks. That was sort of stupid. Then they tried skulls, but you had to get them off people, and that led to fighting. Beside Glenda, Nut was still counting. And now we've got what we call a ball, Trev continued, as his tin can rolled and climbed around him. 
But it ain't all that, because it's a lump of firewood. You can't kick it unless you've got big heavy boots on. It's slow. It's heavy. It don't live, gentlemen. And football should live. The doors at the other end of the hall opened, and Bengo Macarona trotted in, bouncing the new football. Its gloing, gloing echoed around the hall. Some of the football captains had got to their feet, craning for a better view. And with the old football you couldn't do this, said Trev, and dived for the floor as Macarona spun in one balletic movement and sent the ball screaming up the aisle like an angry hornet. Some scenes are only ever a memory rather than an experience, because they happen too fast for immediate comprehension, and Glenda watched the subsequent events on the internal screen of horrified recollection. There were the two arch-mages and the tyrant of the city, watching with frozen interest as the spinning globe hummed towards them, dragging terrible consequences in its wake. And then there was the librarian, rising out of nowhere, stopping it dead in mid-air with a hand like a shovel. "'That's us, gentlemen, and we'll take on the first team that joins us on the Hippo on Saturday at one o'clock. We'll be training all around the city. You can join in if you like. And don't worry if you don't have the balls. We'll give you some.' The candle flames went out, which was just as well, because it is hard to riot in the dark. When the flames rose again in their eerie way, shouting, arguments, laughter, and even discussion were taking place on every table. Quietly, too, the servants went to and fro with their flagons. There always seemed to be another one, Glenda noticed. What have they been drinking? she whispered to the nearest waiter. Winkles are peculiar, mages special, it's top stuff. What about his lordship? he grinned. <laughs> Funny thing, some of them have asked me that too. Just the same as the guests, poured out the same flagon, just like for everyone else. So it's... He stopped. Lord Vetinari was on his feet again. Gentlemen, who among you will accept the challenge? It need not be Dimwell. It need not be Dolly Sisters. It need not be the Nappers. It just has to be a team, gentlemen. The unseen academicals will take on the best of you in the best traditions of sportsmanship. I have set the date of the game for Saturday. As far as the academicals are concerned, you can watch them train, and Mr. Stibbons will give you all the advice you may need. This will be a fair match, gentlemen, you have my word on it. He paused. Did I mention that when it is presented, the very nearly gold urn will be full of beer? The concept is quite popular, I gather, and I predict that for a reasonable period the golden cup will quite miraculously stay full of beer, no matter how many drink thereof. I shall personally see to it. This got a big cheer, too. Glenda felt embarrassed for the men, but angry at them, too. They were being led by the nose, or, more accurately, by the beer. Vetinari didn't need whips and thumbscrews. He just needed Winkle's old peculiar mage's special, and he was leading them like little lambs and matching them pint for pint. How could he manage that? Hey, look at me, he's saying. I'm just like you, and he's not like them at all. They can't have someone killed. She paused the thought to allow consideration of some of the street fights when the pub shut, and amended it to, and get away with it. My friend, the Arch-Chancellor, has just informed me that, of course, the unseen academicals will not on any account resort to magic. Nobody wants to see a team of frogs, I'm sure. There was general laughter at this lame joke, but the plain fact was that right now they would have laughed as a paper bag. "'This will be a proper football match, gentlemen. "'No trickery, only skills,' said the patrician, his voice sharp again. "'And on that note I am decreeing a new code "'based on the hallowed and traditional rules of football "'so recently we discovered, "'but including many familiar ones of more recent usage.' 
The office of referee is there to ensure obedience to the rules. There must be rules, my friends, there must be. There is no game without rules, no rules, no game. And there it was. No one else seemed to notice through the fumes the razor blade glittering for a moment in the candy floss. Rules, thought Glenda. What are these new rules? I never knew there were rules. But Lord Vetinari's assistant, whoever he was, was quietly putting a few sheets of paper in front of each man. She remembered old Stollop's bafflement when confronted with a mere envelope. Some of them could read, surely. But how many of them could read now? His lordship had not finished. "'Finally, gentlemen, I would like you to peruse and sign the copies of the rules Mr. Drumnot has given you. And now I understand the Arch-Chancellor and his colleagues are looking forward to seeing you in the uncommon room for cigars, and, I believe, an exceptionally rare brandy.' "'Well, that would about wrap it up, wouldn't it? The footballers were used to just beer. To be fair, they were used to lots of just beer.' Nevertheless, if she was any judge, and she was pretty good, they would now be very nearly falling down drunk. Although some seasoned captains could stand up for some time while being technically falling down drunk. And there is nothing more embarrassing than seeing a falling down drunk, except for when it is a falling down drunk who is still standing up. And that was amazing. The captains were the type of men who drank in quarts, and could belch the national anthem, and bend steel bars with their teeth, or even somebody else's teeth. Okay, they had never had much in the way of schooling, but why did they have to be so dumb? Tell me, murmured Ridcully to Vetinari as they watched the guests file out unsteadily. Are you behind the discovery of the urn? We have known one another for quite some time, Mustram, have we not? said Vetinari. And as you know, I would not lie to you. He paused for a moment and added, Well, of course, I would lie to you in acceptable circumstances, but on this occasion I can truthfully say that the discovery of the urn came as a surprise to me as well, albeit a pleasant one. Indeed, I assumed that you gentlemen had had something to do with it. We didn't even know it was there, said Ridcully. Personally, I suspect that religion is involved, Vetinari smiled. Well, of course, classically, gods play with the fates of men, so I suppose there is no reason why it shouldn't be football. We play and are played, and the best we can hope for is to do it with style. It might have been possible to cut the air in the uncommon room with a knife, had anyone been able to find a knife, or hold a knife the right way if found. From the point of view of the wizards, it was business as usual. But while a number of captains were being wheeled away in a wheelbarrow, thoughtfully stationed there earlier in the evening, there were enough visitors still standing to make for a damp, hot hubbub. In an unregarded corner, the patrician and the two arch-chancellors had found a space where they could relax unheeded in the big chairs and settle a few matters. "'You know, Henry,' said Vetinari to the former dean, "'I think it would be a very good idea if you were to referee the match.' "'Oh, come on, I think that would be most unfair,' said Ridcully. "'To whom, pray?' "'Well, uh, said Ridcully, "'there could be a question of rivalry between wizards.' "'But on the other hand,' said Vetinari, his voice all smoothness. It might also be said that, for political reasons, another wizard would have a vested interest in not allowing a fellow archmage to be seen to be bested by people who, despite their often amazing talents, skills, features, and histories, are nevertheless lumped together in the term ordinary people. Ridcully raised a very big brandy-glass in the general direction of the edge of the universe. "'I have every faith in my friend, Henry,' he said, "'even though he's a little bit on the tubby side.' "'Oh, unfair!' snapped Henry. "'A large man may be quite light on his feet.' 
Is there any chance of me having the poisoned dagger? In these modern times, said Vetinari, I'm sorry to say that a whistle of some sort will have to suffice. At which point someone tried to slap Vetinari on the back. It happened with remarkable speed, and ended possibly even faster than it began, with Vetinari still seated in his chair, with his beer mug in one hand, and the man's wrist gripped tightly at head height. He let go and said, "'Can I help you, sir?' "'You're that Lord Vetinari, ain't you? I seed you on them postage stumps!' Ridcully glanced up. Some of Lord Vetinari's clerks were briskly heading towards them, along with some of the slurred speaker's friends, who could be defined at this point as people who were slightly more sober than he was, and right now were sobering up very, very fast. Because when you have just slapped a tyrant on the back, you need all the friends you can get. Vetinari nodded at his gentleman, who evaporated back into the crowd. Then he snapped his fingers at one of the waiters. "'A chair here, please, my new friend.' "'Are you sure?' said Ridcully as a chair was pushed under the man, who, by happy coincidence, was falling backwards in any case. "'I mean,' said the man, "'every one says you're a bit of a wanaka, but I says you're all right over this football thing. Snow future in just slogging away. I should know. I got kicked in the head quite a few times.' "'Really?' said Lord Vetinari. "'And what is your name?' "'Swithin, sir,' said the man. "'Any other name, by any chance?' said Vetinari. "'Dustworthy,' he said. He raised a finger in a kind of salute. "'Captain, the cockbill bores.' "'Ah, you aren't having a good season,' said Vetinari. "'You need fresh blood in the squad, especially since Jimmy Wilkins got put into the tanty after eating someone's nose. Nap Hill walked all over you because you lost your backbone when both of the Pinch Penny brothers were taken to the Lady Sibyl, and you've been stuck down in the mud for three seasons.' Okay, everyone says that Harry Capstick is making a very good showing since you bought him from Treacle Mine Tuesday for two crates of Winkle's Old Peculiar and a sack of pork scratchings, which is not bad for a man with a wooden leg, but there's never anyone in support. A circle of silence spread outwards from Vetinari and the swaying Swithin. Ridcully's mouth had dropped open, and Henry's brandy glass remained half empty, an unusual occurrence for a glass that's been in the hands of a wizard for more than fifteen seconds. Also, I'm hearing that your pies are leaving a lot to be desired, such as dead, cooked, organic content, continued Vetinari. Can't get the shove behind you when the pies are seen to walk about. My lads, said Swithin, are the best there is. It's not their fault they're up against better people. They never gets a chance to play someone they can beat. They always gives it 120%, but you can't give more than that. Anyhow, how come you know all this stuff? It's not like we're big in the league. Oh, I take an interest, said Vetinari. I believe that football is a lot like life. There is that, sir, there is that. You does your best, and then someone kicks you in a fork. "'Then I strongly advise you to take an interest in our new football,' said Vetinari, "'which will be about speed, skill, and thinking.' "'Oh, yeah, right, I can do all them,' said Swithin, at which point he fell off his chair. "'Does this poor man have any friends here?' said Vetinari, turning to the crowd. There was some diffidence among them concerning whether or not it was a good idea to be friends with Swithin at this point. Vetinari raised his voice. I would just like a couple of people to take him back to his home. I would like them to put him to bed and see that no trouble comes to him. 
Perhaps they ought to stay with him until morning, too, because he just might try to commit suicide when he wakes up. New dawn for football, said the Times when Glenda picked it up the next morning. As was its wont when it was reporting something it thought was particularly important, the paper's headline was followed by two others in descending sizes of font. Footballers sign up for the new game, was on the next line down, and then on the next, new balls a success. To Glenda's surprise and dismay, Juliet still had a place on the front page, with the picture of her used smaller than yesterday under the headline Mystery Lady Vanishes, and a paragraph which simply said that no one had seen the mystery model, Jules, since her debut. Glenda had to look this one up two days ago. Honestly, she thought, not finding somebody is news, and she was surprised that there was room for even this, since most of the front page was dedicated to the football. But the Times liked to start several stories on the front page, and then, just when they were getting interesting, whisked them off to page 35 or somewhere to end their days behind the crossword and the permanent advert for surgical trusses. The leader column inside was headed Score One for Veterinari. Glenda never normally read the leader column because there was only a certain number of times she was prepared to see the word however used in a 120-word article. She read the front page story at first glumly and then with rising anger. Veterinari had done it. He had got them drunk and the fools had signed away their football for a pale variety cooked up by the palace and the university. Of course, minds are never quite that simple. She had to admit to herself that she hated the stupidity of the present game. She hated the idiot fighting and the mindless shoving, but it was hers to hate. It was something that people themselves had put together, and rickety and stupid though it was, it was theirs. And now the knobs were again picking up something that wasn't theirs and saying how wonderful it was. The old football was going to be banned. That was another little razor blade in Lord Veterinari's alcoholic candy floss. She was also deeply suspicious about the urn, the picture of which, for some reason, was still on her kitchen table. Since what it was claimed to be the original rules was written in an ancient language, how could anyone other than a knob know what they meant? She ran her eye down the description of the new rules. Some of the rules of old street football had survived in there like monsters from another era. She recognised one that she had always liked. The ball shall be called the ball. The ball is the ball that is played as the ball by any three consecutive players, at which point it is the ball. She'd loved it when she first read it for the sheer stupidity of its phraseology. Apparently, it had been added on a day centuries ago when an unfortunately severed head had rolled into play and had rather absent-mindedly replaced the ball currently in play on account of somebody formerly belonging to the head now lying on the original ball. That kind of thing stuck in the memory, especially because after the match the owner of the head was credited with scoring the winning goal. That rule and a few others stood out as remnants of a vanished glory in the list of Lord Veterinari's new regulations. A few nods at the old game had been left in as a kind of sop to public opinion. He should not be allowed to get away with it. Just because he was a tyrant and capable of having just about anybody killed on a whim, people acted as if they were scared of him. Someone ought to tell him off. The world had turned upside down several times. She hadn't quite got her bearings, but making sure that Lord Veterinari did not get away with it was suddenly very important. It was up to the people to decide when they were being stupid and old-fashioned. It wasn't up to knobs to tell them what to do. With great determination, she put on her coat over her apron and, after a moment's thought, took two freshly made jammy devils from her cupboard. 
where a battering ram cannot work, really good short crust pastry can often break through. In the oblong office, the patrician's personal secretary looked at the stopwatch. Fifty seconds slower than your personal best, I'm afraid, my lord. Proof indeed that strong drink is a mocker, Drumnot, said Vetinari severely. I suspect that no further proof is needed, said Drumnot, with his little secretarial smile. Although I would in fairness point out that Charlotte of the Times is emerging as the most fearsome crossword compiler of all time, and they are a pretty fearsome lot, but her... Initialisms, odds and evens, hidden words, container reverses, and now diagonals. How does she do it? Well, you did it, sir. I undid it. That is much easier. Betanari raised a finger. It is that woman who runs the pet shop in Pellicool Steps. Depend upon it. She hasn't been mentioned as a winner recently. She must be compiling the things. The female mind is certainly a devious one, my lord. Vetinari looked at his secretary in surprise. "'Well, of course it is. It has to deal with the male one. I think—' There was a gentle tap at one of the doors. The patrician turned back to the times while Drumnot slipped out of the room. After some whispered exchanges, the secretary returned. "'It would appear that a young woman has got in via the back gate by bribing the guards, sir. They accepted the bribes as per your standing orders, and she has been shown into the ante-room, which she will soon find is locked.' She wishes to see you because, she says, she has a complaint. She is a maid. Lord Vetinari looked over the top of the paper. Tell her I can't help her with that. Perhaps, oh, I don't know, a different perfume would help? I mean, she is a member of the serving classes, sir. Her name is Glenda Sugarbean. Tell her... Vetinari hesitated and then smiled. Ah, yes, Sugarbean. Did she bribe the guards with food? Something baked, perhaps? "'Well done, sir. A large jammy devil apiece. May I ask how?' "'She is a cook, Drumnot, not a maid. Show her in by all means.' The secretary looked a little resentful. "'Are you sure this is wise, sir? I have already told the guards to throw the foodstuffs away.' "'Food cooked by a sugar-bean? You may have committed a crime against high art, Drumnot. I shall see her now. I must point out that you have a full schedule this morning, my lord.' "'Quite so.' It is your job to point this out, and I respect that. But I did not return until half-past four this morning, and I distinctly remember stubbing my toe on the stairs. I am as drunk as a skunk, Drumnot, which of course means skunks are just as drunk as I. I must say, the term is unfamiliar to me, and I had not thought hitherto of skunks in this context, but Mustrum Ridcully was kind enough to enlighten me. Allow me then a moment of indulgence. Well, you are the patrician, sir, said Drumnot. You can do as you please. That is kind of you to say so, but I did not, in fact, need reminding, said Vetinari, with what was almost certainly a smile. When the severe thin man opened the door, it was too late to flee. When he said, His lordship will see you now, Miss Sugarbean, it was too late to faint. What had she been thinking of? Had she been thinking at all? Glenda followed the man into the next room, which was oak-panelled and sombre, and the most uncluttered office she had ever seen. The room of the average wizard was so stuffed with miscellaneous things that the walls were invisible. Here, even the desk was clear, apart from a pot of quill pens, an inkwell, an open copy of the Ankh-Morpork Times, and—her eye stayed fixed on this one, unable to draw itself away—a mug with the slogan, To the World's Greatest Boss. 
It was so out of place it might have been an intrusion from another universe. A chair was quietly placed behind her. This was just as well, because when the man at the desk looked up, she sat down abruptly. Vetinari pinched the bridge of his nose and sighed. "'Miss Sugarbean, there are whole rooms in this palace full of people who want to see me, and they are powerful and important people, or at least they think they are. Yet Mr. Drumnot has kindly inserted in my schedule, ahead of the Postmaster-General and the Mayor of Stolat, a meeting with a young cook with her coat on over her apron, and an intent, it says here, of having it out with me. And this is because I take notice of incongruity, and you, Miss Sugarbean, are incongruous. What is it you want? Who says I want anything? Everyone wants something when they are in front of me, Miss Sugarbean, even if it is only to be somewhere else. All right. You made all the captains drunk last night and got them to sign that letter in the paper. The stare did not flicker. That was much worse than, well, anything. Young lady, drink levels all mankind. It is the ultimate democrat, if you like that sort of thing. A drunk beggar is as drunk as a lord, and so is a lord. And have you ever noticed that all drunks can understand one another, no matter how drunk they are and how different their native tongues? I take it for a certainty that you are a relation to Augusta Sugarbean? The question, tagged onto the praises of inebriation, hit her between the eyes, scattering her thoughts. What? Oh, well, yes, that's right, she was my grandmother. And she was a cook at the Guild of Assassins when she was younger. That's right, she always made a joke about how she wouldn't let them use any— She stopped quickly, but Vetinari finished the sentence for her. Of her cakes to poison people— and we always obeyed, too, because, as you surely know, miss, no one likes to upset a good cook. Is she still with us? She passed on two years ago, sir. But since you are a sugar-bean, I assume you have acquired a few more grandmothers as a replacement. Your grandmother was always a stalwart in the community, and you must take all those little dainties for someone. You can't know that. You're only guessing. But all right, they're for all the old ladies that don't get out much. Anyway, it's a perk. Oh, but of course. Every job has its little perks. Why, I don't expect Drumnot here has bought a paper clip in his life, eh, Drumnot? The secretary, tidying papers in the background, gave a wan little smile. Look, I only take leftovers, Glenda began, but this was waved away. You are here about the football, said Vetinari. You were at the dinner last night, but the university likes its serving girls to be tall, and I have an eye for such things. "'Therefore, I assume you made it your business to be there without bothering your superiors. "'Why? You're taking their football away from them.' "'The patrician steepled his fingers and rested his chin on them while he looked at her. "'He's trying to make me nervous,' she thought. "'It's working. Oh, it's working.' 